Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, listeners, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and part two of the top ten UFO incidents, and we're covering a lot more than the top ten here. The ones we covered in part one, just a just review, we covered Roswell, we covered Rendlesheim, we covered the Phoenix Lights, we covered the Hesdalen Lights in Norway and the Marine Putty Case in Australia, we covered the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, and now Neil's going to start us off with the Denchmont Woods case. Neil, could you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, so this is, um, I think this is the best British case in history. And when I was promoting my, my, my new book recently, one of the things that the publishers wanted me to do was to, for, for the UK to come up with the top 10 UK cases. And I put this at number one, above Rendlesham Forest, which is by far the best known. It's quite an interesting case. Basically, this happened in November 1979, and a forestry worker called Bob Taylor, who lived very close to the forest in which he worked, had taken his uh, his forestry vehicle up into a piece of woodland. He parked his vehicle and got out and walked into the woods, and he saw like a huge craft, or sizable craft, floating in front of him. But this was quite unusual because what appeared to be happening was that it was fading in and out. So whilst there was clearly some object floating in front of him in the woods, and it looked like a intelligently designed constructed object, um, there were times he could see through it. It was almost like it was appearing and disappearing. And then, as he describes it, um, two smaller objects came away from this, and they were they were identical objects. And they were they were like spheres with spikes sticking out of them, and they came towards him. At which point he lost consciousness, and when he woke up, he was in a bit of a state. He was confused. He he'd had some. He felt like he'd been assaulted. Yeah, there were you know there were some some cuts on his body. He was in a enough of a confused and frightened state that he decided to get himself out of the place right away but he was in such a mess I mean a, a mark of how confused he was was that in the course of trying to escape the place he managed to back his uh, his pickup truck his vehicle into a ditch and get it stuck 
so he had no alternative but to leave the place on foot. But luckily for him, he wasn't very far from his home because his forestry cottage was was just on the outskirts of the woods. So it wasn't that long before he was home. Um, his wife was at home and was shocked at the state he was in when he arrived. And as a result of that, this is for my money, this is why the case is the best in British history because she did what any caring wife would do. Um, she wasn't sure and he wasn't making sense. So she rang the police and she rang the doctor. Um, and this was a small community in Scotland. So everybody in the community was quite well known to each other. Consequently, Bob Taylor knew both the, the detective who turned up and he knew the doctor. It was, this was his own, what we call him in the UK, a GP, a general practitioner. So these people saw him very, very quickly. And whilst he was talking about this strange experience with the crafted scene and, and what had happened to him, the policeman who attended really didn't know what else to do with it other than to treat it as an assault because he clearly he'd undergone some kind of you know enough physical trauma to look like a guy who'd been assaulted um so as a result of that various things happened that helped the investigation of the case first of all bob taylor's clothes that he was wearing at the time became police evidence um and they were investigated and these were the same these were quite these clothes were forestry clothes so his trousers for example which are now this sounds it's probably inappropriate to say it but bob taylor's trousers are the holy relic of british ufology <laughs> <laughs> most of us at some point have, have touched them i've i've had my hands in bob taylor's trousers like a lot of other people they're currently owned by a guy called malcolm robinson who was one of the principal investigators on the case and he's one of the most active ufo investigators in the uk and actually remind me at the end of the podcast uh, john because it i'd do you a favor to put you in touch with malcolm robinson he'd make an interesting guest he knows loads about scotland uh, scottish cases and he was the main investigator on, on the bob taylor case and he's written the best book on the subject he's written a substantial book on the subject okay. so one or two things came to light as a result of the forensic examination probably the most significant is that there were tears in these trousers but the trousers appeared to have been torn upwards yeah almost like some something had pulled bob taylor upwards and cut through his trousers as it was doing it um I think quite predictably, the police investigation turned up no assailant or no proof that he'd been assaulted, although he was clearly in a state akin to being assaulted. Um, and similarly, the medical examination confirmed what his wife thought, that um, he was confused, disorientated, he'd clearly suffered some kind of trauma and there were physical abrasions on his body, but he wasn't ill. Uh, certain things have been, he was, he was hypnotically regressed, this is the story that's come out is partly based on the hypnotic regression and so it's a very well evidenced case the the witness who's dead now uh, never changed his story from the day of the event to the day he died he was not somebody who particularly had any interest in the subject and he certainly wasn't a publicity seeker and the other reason for my money that this is the best case in British history is because it's a pleasant surprise that unlike a lot of the other big UFO cases, which tend to get polluted by eyewitnesses who turn up late and disagree with each other and then the stories become convoluted to the point where they can't all exist in the same place. The Bob Taylor case, the Deckmont Wood case, um, 
hasn't had that. So it's been thoroughly investigated by the police. Obviously, his doctor took an interest in this as well. And UFO investigators have worked on this, particularly Malcolm Robinson. They've turned up quite a lot, including potential explanations. They're all clearly laid out. There's absolutely no doubt that something truly unusual and uncanny happened at the middle of it, and we can't easily explain it. I'll, I'll throw a couple of other things in there, and just in terms of, of why this is such a good case. Um, I'd be interested to hear your opinions on it. So there's something that is unusual about this. When people picture it, when it's filmed for the UK, they all, they, they're filming the same location, right? So what you see in front of you is the woods and these days there's even a you know there's a marker in the woods rather like the Rendlesham Forest case you can actually go and see a plaque commemorating it and you can do a walk including at the point where, where Bob Taylor actually lost consciousness and you, you can see the area but it always looks very rural in truth it isn't it's it's an odd place in Scotland it's it's countryside with a little village but it's it's very very close to what we would call a motorway and what you'd call a freeway and actually, you know, a significant motorway that runs across the middle of Scotland. So it's a remote looking kind of place, but it's not actually that remote. And this is significant because there aren't any eyewitness reports from motorists on the motorway. And there would have been loads of them that saw anything happen. And what's great about this case, like I say, because it's not been polluted by, you know, any eyewitnesses coming forward later on that contradict each other and stuff like that. The the one significant book on the case, Malcolm Robinson's book, quite thoughtfully lines up 16 different explanations with various different arguments about why they might make sense. I mean, clearly, the, the one that people like to believe is that Bob Taylor actually encountered an alien craft. Um, another thing, a few uncanny things in it. He clearly encountered no alien beings, but the two things that came towards him that seemed to be linked to this craft, the globes, the spheres, with the little spikes sticking out of them. When you see a picture of them, they resemble the sea mines that were used in World War II. And Bob Taylor was in the Navy in mm -hmm. World War II. And apart from anything else, his survival at certain points depended on people seeing these mines before the ships hit them. So they would be objects that were in the minds of most of the crews on the the navy vessels including the one he served on so <clears throat> one possibility is that he had some kind of ptsd well yeah right or, or some kind of hallucinogenic experience in fact one argument that's been put forward is that there are fungi in that forest and he might have accidentally got these on his hands or ingested them and he might, um, literally might have been tripping and he if you see pictures of bob taylor sure. He doesn't look to me like a guy that was much given to a trip or some psychedelic music. He was a pretty down-to-earth kind of guy. Not a magic mushroom type of guy, yeah. No, no, but but if he'd accidentally ingested them, then, you know, it's, the rest of it might make some sense. And, uh, uh, another quite interesting theory is that <clears throat> um, he might have accidentally come upon a secret military test and actually for for machinery that was being used by the British, always being planned to be used by the British Army in Northern Ireland. I mean, it's quite a fanciful explanation, but it stands up better than you think when you read it in, in the in the Death Mott Woods Encounter book. 
but it's for me it's just the best case in british history because it's a kind of pure case there's evidence there's a, a timeline and a story that hasn't changed and there is no doubt that something truly unusual happened to bob taylor and there is no easy explanation to easily explain away one or two of the intriguing bits of evidence like how his trousers were torn in an upward motion yeah i mean it mm-hmm. clearly happened and and you know it's it, it, but was it, it both legs, both legs? Uh, mm-hmm. did it start yeah, from yeah, the cuff yeah. no the, the 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 tears as i remember it when i touched the trousers John, <laughs> are, yeah they're in the legs but they're just they're, they're above and below the knee basically and there aren't many of them and it, you know they're, they're, they're just good hard wearing trousers is, is that I a tourist site now is that like kissing the blarney stone you've got to look at this guy's uh, ripped trousers i mean <laughs> that, the, the, is the, the uk the, getting hard up for tourists or what but, <laughs> well <laughs> the uk has ufo linked tourist sites including <laughs> where bob taylor's trousers came to grief and they're worth a visit yeah and the okay. facts will record that and rendlesham forest as well the the, the 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 trousers are actually in the possession of the the main investigator malcolm robinson if you get him on your podcast he can probably get the trousers out and show you yeah? oh okay i'll i'll i've already made a note of that yeah but but for me that's the best british case well, that's nothing like what they've got in, in the little tiny rural town of Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, forget the trousers. They have got a huge acorn-shaped um, likeness of a craft of some sort. It's a flying object, let's put it that way, that landed in Kecksburg on December 9th, 1961. I'm going to check that, make sure I'm right. No, December 9th, 1965. Uh, yeah. Merry Christmas, Kecksburg. Kecksburg sits about uh, 20 miles south and east of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So it's kind of middle America there, okay? A lot of people around dusk in that evening saw a red-hot object flying over Kecksburg's very wooded area and coming down through the trees, breaking its way down through the trees, and then landing, thump, hard enough to shake the ground where the houses nearby felt the shake. And it was immediately reported, reported just before that, but not to the same authorities, was a, a brilliant fireball that was seen in at least six U.S. states and Ontario, Canada, as it streaked over Detroit, Michigan. And it was also raining debris through Michigan and northern Ohio. It was found out later, and I'm kind of condensing this story, but it was found out later that the Russians had launched a satellite at that time, and the satellite had broken up over Ontario. And that the theory is, and it's probably a pretty good theory, that that satellite was carrying this huge bell-shaped or acorn-shaped object, which as soon as people got to this object, the military seemed to know about it because it was within, I think it was within an hour that the military had commanded uh, fire rescue teams in the area to rope this place off where this thing had landed and the military was coming. And they flew out some real top bigwigs. I think Heineck was part of that initial uh, research on this object that had landed in Kecksburg. They kept the public away, but a lot of witnesses did get to that thing and see what it was, saw that there were no windows or ports on this thing. Um, They were for a little bit afraid of radioactivity, uh, so a lot of guys didn't get that close to it, but they looked all around it, couldn't see anything other than hieroglyphics written around the lower rim 
If it were a bell, you know, that bell flange that exists around the bottom. Uh, in this case, it wraps around just like an acorn would. Everything's solid state. No windows, no doors, no antennas, no access to it anywhere. But this strange hieroglyphics written around the lower base of this thing. And that got a lot of people's curiosity up, obviously. There was an attempt by the government to debunk it, uh, saying there's, in fact, they said there's nothing here, nothing to find, nothing to see. And all the people who had seen anything were told that it's top government project to leave it alone, don't talk about it, don't start spreading word about it. It's, you didn't see it. That's, that was basically the word that they put out. Uh, this was, again, this was loaded onto a truck, and that was witnessed as well. Uh, by people who saw the truck flatbed heading uh, heading west out of Kecksburg with this object on it early the next morning uh, under military convoy. Nobody followed the convoy, but researchers in the years after this happened put together the fact that it probably went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. And I checked it. It's 269 miles west of Kecksburg. Wright-Patterson has a reputation as being the place in the U.S. where anything that's fallen from the skies is collected, researched, and of course the legend is that any craft, including the Roswell craft that came down, was also shipped to Wright-Patterson. There's a, apparently, by if you believe in the legend, there's a secret facility there where people like Dr. Stanton Friedman working there would try to re-engineer whatever it is that they collected and found and see what our technology could do with it. And a lot of people believe that story, that there's a lot there at Wright-Patterson. There's just a lot of links that have come down through the years that all lead to Wright-Patterson. To make a long story short, a lot of people believe. We know that there was a what they call the paperclip operation, a paperclip project, where at the end of World War II, you were mentioning before in, in the last episode, Werner von Braun was probably the best get we ever had mm. from the Nazis. He was a top-rated scientist. He helped us develop a lot of our military technology. We split, we split the Nazis' scientists between us and Russia. Russia got half. We got half. And the half that we had were apparently sent to Wright-Patterson. And they were working there as a team on research. The other half at some secret facility in Russia... And the two were allowed to communicate with each other. My guess is that the team in Russia contacted their German counterparts in the U.S. and said, we're sending you a Christmas gift. And that they had <laughs> developed this thing that they could send up on a satellite and try and bring in by remote control. And that they would probably tried to bring it into Wright-Patterson as close as they could. Well, they, ended, they managed to land it. Uh, through remote control. This thing had no antennas on it. Anything that they had on this, this huge piece was internal. So they were able to, from, from where they were, and it's possible that the, maybe the controls were set up at Wright-Patterson to receive it. Maybe that's how they did it. But at any rate, that this huge acorn-shaped craft, which a lot of people still say today was a UFO, was actually an experimental piece that was sent up by the German team in Russia to Wright-Patterson as a Christmas gift that they could do some research on it. And, that, and a lot of people said, well, you know what? The Germans, uh, during World War II, the German scientists were working on a uh, time capsule. And that the shape of that time capsule, according to the, to the information they had, was pretty much the, sh the same acorn-shaped type capsule. 
The hieroglyphics were probably a joke. You know, wink of an eye. Let's put hieroglyphics on this so the first people approaching it are going to think it's some kind of strange UFO. That was yeah. probably done just as a as a uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, <laughs> effort uh, to dress up the outside of it. That's that's the theory, and that's a theory that I kind of agree with. Makes sense. The, 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 that's an interesting theory because if I remember rightly, um, the the, the, the satellite that was coming over at the time, because the, the, the whole Kecksburg story is linked to the fact that there was a Russian satellite whose orbit was decaying and the Americans apparently thought they might recover it. And I think, was it Cosmos 96? Um, we, we begins with a K. Again, if, if your listeners are listening in, I, th I think it's Cosmos 96 that they talk about. The, the, the most skeptical views of, Ros of, 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 of Kecksburg that I've read, it, it because it yes, it was, it was Cosmos ninety six Venera type. Yep, no, that's not bad remembering off the top of my head, then, is it? <laughs> um, and the the, the the event skeptics often link the event to what's called the Great Lakes Fireball. So, um, you know, the a skeptical, really skeptical view of it would be to say it's the Great Lakes Fireball and a lot of hysteria. It's interesting what you're saying about that because there's no doubt that there were military personnel in the area. Um, I mean, that's, that is beyond dispute. Even the most skeptical views have to take on board the fact that there were military personnel in the area who turned up in response to the reports. And, you know, they were clearly there. Yeah, you're right. I mean, sometimes the most intriguing cases do have military involvement. And there is absolutely no doubt, we don't have to go into all the details now, but there are a number of, of well-known cases, UFO cases, sometimes very mundane ones, but they're quite well known, where the what was going on obviously was to do with secret military craft that even, even people in the military encountering them didn't realize what was such a thing. I mean, around the time of Kecksburg, and again, I, I made the point the last time we talked on the second episode that one thing I think if, if you've got listeners who are listening in who are just interested in knowing more about UFOs, I think a really useful thing to go and do is to get the books from the past and read them because you, what you understand from reading those is what people believed at the time, how they talked to each other about it and what were the kind of common myths then which might not be the same ideas we've got now. I mean, apart from anything else, if you go back to Kecksburg, on the odd occasion people encountered aliens, it was an absolute menagerie of aliens, yeah? <laughs> different shapes, different sizes, human, not human. And it's not, for example, Kecksburg's not that long before the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter where basically a, a family in rural America were besieged by little, almost devilish aliens and turned their firearms on them before running out of ammunition and just deciding to leg it. Um, and when you read the contemporary account of the Kecksburg case, I mean, clearly the, the, the belief was it was some kind of landed alien craft. There, but, but, you know, it, it, there's a certain kind of hysteria about it, and it fits very much with that particular period, and the technology that people are talking about fit with that particular period. And there are certain reports at that time which in the UFO literature then made sense as UFOs, and subsequently we understand are not. So... From the, it was a common belief in the early 1960s, for example, that there were UFOs orbiting the Earth and that there were UFOs high in the atmosphere and they were moving faster than our radar could track them, but we just started to pick them up on radar. Now, some of those reports were generated by the SR-71 Blackbird, mm -hmm, which right. was, yeah. yeah, 
which was an aircraft so implausibly ahead of its time. I mean, there is. I'm not the expert here, but I know there's a book called Travels in Dreamland, which is, which discusses sort of ufology and secret military craft, and it talks about Area 51. And he, that 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 book has quite a lot to say about the Blackbird, um, and it was an unusual aircraft. So nobody would have believed that there was a Mach 3 aircraft other than that Lockheed who had actually developed this thing and could see it flying and the pilots that were that were piloting it and I mean it, it was useful that the Russians weren't aware of it for a while it, it was so fast it could outrun their missiles but if I understand it correctly all these UFO reports obviously they were generated by that the American military were never going to ring up civilian radar operators or even their own radar operators and say stop reporting that it's one of our craft right it suited them that people believed it was a UFO rather like you're saying with the Kecksburg case that right. um, you know if, if the UFO cover story comes out and actually they've done something very clever retrieving a piece of hardware that started its life in Russia then you probably as well to leave the UFO story out there. Um, I know in the, in the case of the Blackbird, if I understand it correctly, one of the revolutionary things was that to get the fuselage to work properly, they'd they'd thought through the how it would heat up once the air moved that fast over the fuselage. So when the Blackbird's on the ground, it leaks fuel, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's fuel pouring out of it, and that's not a logical way to build an aircraft, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you or I would be terrified if our holiday jet suddenly started leaking fuel out of the wings, wouldn't we? Yeah. Um, you know, so it was it was cutting edge to the point where no, and that particular design feature on it is that's central to how it was able to do Mach three in the 1960s. So the point I'm making is that this is linked to Kecksburg in the in the sense that there are amazing UFO reports written up in very kind of vivid ways in the literature of the time and we now know from stuff that's been declassified that they're not alien UFOs they're actually misunderstood earthly objects and Kecksburg yeah you, you may well have a good point there Sean you know there, yeah. there, might, there might be something that started life in Russia that's that's now at Wright Patterson or started in Germany and made it to Russia exactly right well, I, okay. I really did yeah. I do really do believe it did and they say that this um this this Kecksburg UFO from reports that they've read of the German research on De Glock, which was, that's the German for the bell, uh, oh, th right. that exactly matched the research that the Nazis were doing on De Glock, which they felt was not a weapon as much as it was a time capsule. Uh, interesting. Okay. But uh, also on that, you know, you made me think of uh, the strange way that the F-71 was powered. And you look at these reports from that we gave in the last podcast about the Nimitz and the Tic Tac aircraft and the churning of the water below it. And it makes you wonder, I wonder if in a way that they were refueling uh, using hydrogen that they were sucking out of the ocean water, H2O, if that's what oh, that's was causing, exactly. if that what was causing the churning uh, movement in the water below that craft, if they've maybe, maybe that technology, whosoever it is, be it alien or be it Earth, uh, is is pulling hydrogen out of that water somehow, and that's what was causing the churning. Never know. It might. I've no idea with, with regard to the Tic Tac. You and I both looked at the same document before we discussed that on an earlier podcast, and I I noticed that the one of the people who comments in that document is a guy called Kevin Day, um, and the, the, the Metabunk website. I had a look at the video and. 
they argue that the Tic Tac isn't quite all it seems and it, if you take on board the basically the exposure and the camera settings it might not be what it seems to be and there's a frame you can freeze later on in the video where the Tic Tac appears to take the shape of a jet fighter so it may just be a misidentification. Well, you, I, mean, I remember that I remember discussing that with you and, and I did I did go back and check on that with regard to Day and Day wasn't a skeptic on that. Mm. Uh, and I've got a piece of his report that kind of shows where he where he was on that. Okay. He's um. My, my, my bad if I've misunderstood that on the document. I mean, I, what 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 I saw, I, I just know that there's a there's a freeze frame that's been metabunk put it up basically, um, who are a very skeptical site. And there's a there's a freeze frame which which shows what appears to be the shape of a fighter aircraft towards the end of the video, and it, it's you know. It, the important point I think to make on this is that sometimes you see photographic and film evidence and depending on where you stop it, you, your mind is doing some of the work, yeah, you know, and, and, and the, the, it, with regard to the Tic Tac, it certainly looks very convincing at the beginning of the video, l l less so towards the end of it, but then it's it's the sensational bits that get reported, isn't it? And I mean, we, we won't know about that. I don't. We'll, we'll maybe talk at the end of this one about where UFO investigation is going to go in in the wake of the Pentagon report, John. I, I would, I would like to say this about Day. I've got a quote on Day. Oh, sorry. He was replying to the question, "What about all the other vectors and jets? Uh, weren't weren't there more scrambled out to catch these objects and get some film?" And he answers, but he says, "Fast Eagle One flight was simply the first airborne. Other air crews were now aware of the objects." from radio chatter, as well as the objects being reported to flight crews on our data links. Madness shortly ensued for a time as the air crews took it upon themselves to attempt their own autonomous intercepts. And suddenly, we had a lot of our interceptors racing after the objects. At one point, all 10 objects on radar suddenly all dropped from 28,000 feet down to sea level in reaction. It was literally raining UFOs. So that's that's from day. I, I, yeah, absolutely, John. I don't know. I wasn't there. It's it's it is one of the more intriguing cases. And maybe we should, after we've gone through our top ten, maybe we should talk about where UFO investigation is going to go, what things might turn up in the future, and how we might understand them. I think. I'd, I'd, I let's let's do yeah. that today. We've got we've still got to cover Tehran in '76, okay. Nova Scotia, and RAF Bedwaters. Why don't we cover those three, and then we'll get to the future UFOs. What do you think of that? The, after Kexburg, one of my favorite, favorite. I don't know if it's appropriate to say that, I think one of the best cases in history is the 1976 Tehran incident. Um, the, 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 the Wikipedia page about me actually mentions it because it's, um, I meant I discussed it in an earlier UFO book, and I said it. It was basically for skepticism, and what what I mean by that is that I'm, as you, as your listeners will have gathered, I'm a, a bit more skeptical about alien explanations than most people who investigate UFOs, um, and so one of the reasons I really like the Tehran case is because it's, it's not easily explained conventionally, and it's a complicated case. But keeping it really simple, in September, I think September the nineteenth, nineteen seventy-six in Tehran in Iran and this is important to America and the UK because people forget that 
they in Iran were our friends then. It was a very westward-looking Arabic nation. The Shah of Iran was still there before the revolution. We, the British were suppliers of military hardware to the Iranians and so were the Americans and they were a friendly power in that area who were quite useful to us. So military information was exchanged very readily. So the British Ministry of Defence knew a lot about this case very quickly and it became well known in British UFO literature. And basically on I think it was the 19th of September 1976 there were radar tracks and visual sightings of a large strange object and the main military base in Tehran which is the capital of, of Iran scrambled one jet fighter and then scrambled another jet fighter the first jet fighter went up to investigate this object got a look at the object got a lock radar lock on the object and at this point a smaller object detached from the larger one and came towards the jet and the pilot was taken aback by this because whatever he was looking at looked like no conventional aircraft and what had come off it looked like no conventional aircraft so having a, com a rapid conversation with the, with the control um, it was agreed that he had to engage it, shoot it down because they, it was acting in a hostile way so he armed his weapon systems, got a lock on it at which point so the story goes, the electronic systems on his plane failed before he was able to shoot off a missile and he was left with no choice really but to break off the combat and go around in a circle which is because of that, that's why the second plane was dispatched. Now there's various reports of the second plane, some of the more vivid reports say exactly the same thing happened to the second plane some of the more skeptical reports say no but there's absolutely no doubt two planes were dispatched to deal with this in the course of this, there was a landing of this small object in the desert, and they're away from Tehran at this point, and they're over the Iranian desert, so they, they're in an area, they're over an area that's not, that's hardly populated at all. Um, and because this bright object had come close to the, the lead jet, there was problems getting the jets down on the ground so the the lead pilot actually had to attempt his landing I think three times at least twice and he was talked down by the air basically talked down by the control tower both pilots returned safely the the, the object disappeared the following day the Iranian military dispatched a team out into the desert where this object this little detached object had come down and landed um, and they found some witnesses on the ground who claimed that they'd seen a light in the sky that had come down. Yeah, they couldn't find any evidence of what had landed there, but they they actually had eyewitnesses that dealt with it that that had seen it. Um, so it's it's a truly intriguing case. Now, um, there are, there are a couple of problems with it. <laughs> what what would you expect me to say this this late into talking about UFOs? But there are there are some problems with this. So some of the stories don't quite add up. A very skeptical take on it was written up by Philip Klass, who was one of your go-to UFO skeptics in America for years. And Philip Klass was an aviation journalist, so he had contacts on the inside of various military operations, particularly you know air force operations. Um, he's quite scathing about some of this. His take on it is that it was a series of misunderstandings and misperceptions, you know, misunderstood radar tracking 
the main object that was seen was exactly where I think Jupiter would be, but it's a it's a mistaken planet. And he his most scathing comments are about the state of battle readiness amongst the Iranian Air Force. He he basically describes them as a as a boys' club. Um, you know, as in in that particular regime, if you wanted to be an Air Force pilot, it helped if your parents were very rich and you'd been to the right school. Yeah, you know, it was it, they, they, they weren't really a proper combat ready operation. And it is absolutely true that that was the first mm -hmm. such yeah. night mission ever undertaken by the Iranian Air Force. Right. Um, so the whole thing about the planes malfunctioning and the pilots not being able to make confident landings might be linked mm -hmm. to the fact that they'd not flown at night in a combat situation before let alone a situation as stressy as that where like you were describing with the the the, the kevin day and the tic tac and and whatever that you've got a you've got a situation where the pilots who are airborne are hugely excited and very confused about what's going on and it, it doesn't they may well be well-trained pilots but your training as a pilot doesn't include the random things that might come in a ufo event at which point everybody is trying to figure it out as they go along uh last point on this i've mentioned before when i was talking to you a guy called ralph noise and just if people want to google him <laughs> you I've had a few emails mentioning him on podcast and people say to me, I can't find Ralph Noise and they, they spell it noise like a loud noise. <laughs> it's N-O Yankee E-S, right? Yeah. Um, and Ralph, I, I was fortunate enough to be in a UFO <laughs> research group with Ralph for a few years. He was um, he yeah. worked a lifetime at Britain's Ministry of Defence and the internet doesn't agree. I've seen his final rank described as either an air commodore or an undersecretary. The point is, he was very high up in the organization. I always understood he was an undersecretary when I when I knew him, but I, that might have been wrong. Um, and he was an amazing guy. And I, I was a very young ufologist at this point, and Ralph had been around the Ministry of Defense for years. And to be honest, the thing I used to love about Ralph in, in, the, in the research group, first of all, he was incredibly open-minded. There wasn't anything he didn't know about UFOs. And if you had a coffee break, you could just go up to him. I mean, I I used to make a beeline for him, and I just I was just getting up to speed with the subject. And if you just dropped a name for him with him, you know, tell me about Gray Barker, Ralph. He, that's it. He just, you know, two or three minutes over a coffee. He just download the lot. He was amazing, and he was very consistent. I've mentioned this on your podcast before. He was very consistent about a couple of things. First of all, that. There was a hell of a lot less of a cover-up than most people suspected with the Ministry of Defence. And the fact that Ralph was in his retirement, hanging around with UFO people, going to UFO conferences, presenting, confused as the rest of us, was evidence of the truth of what he was saying. I mean, that's that's how he used to point it out. Um, and I remember he, he was consistent with the story that said basically that in his entire working life at the Ministry of Defence, there were only ever three cases that had got them really, really excited, and Tehran 1976 was one of them, because the Iranians were our allies and we'd got this military information from the Iranians. Now, as I understood it, the excitement in these cases was that they were such perplexing events for the pilots and the people on the ground that they genuinely didn't know what they were dealing with. So one of the things that worried the Ministry of Defense is if an incoming enemy strike was as confusing as that, the enemy might get an advantage in the first moments of a battle, and that was 
terrifying. And we'll talk about the Bendwaters case later on because that's another of those those events. So there's absolutely no, this is another reason the Tehran case is good. There is absolutely no doubt that the NATO countries that were friendly with Iran at the time took this case really seriously. For a brief time, they were very worried about what it was and they were worried about how it had been dealt with and they, they had to find the truth of it. Ralph Noyes didn't ever indicate that, he, that they'd discovered what the truth of the whole thing was. So he, Philip Kloss may be right, but if he's not, then it is one of the most intriguing cases, UFO cases ever. The last incident I have of the Big, of the big Ten is the Shag Harbor UFO incident, which that got a lot of press. Very, 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 very interesting situation there. It really, there was a pre-incident aerial phenomena that really set off that. You had Air Canada First Officer Robert Ralph spotting, well, he was, he was en route to Toronto, flying over Sherbrooke and St. John. And he pointed out to his co-captain on Flight 305 that there was something strange out on the left side of the aircraft happening. It was 7.15 p.m. at night. This was in October of 1967. In his report, the captain reported an object tracking along a parallel course a few miles away. He described it as a brilliantly lit rectangular object with a string of smaller lights trailing the object. About four minutes later, the pilots noticed a sizable silent explosion near the large object. Two minutes later, a second explosion occurred which faded to a blue cloud around the object. So both of these guys witnessed it from their flight. That was what happened prior to what was seen in Shag Harbor. It was about three and a half hours later in Shag Harbor that, and this is up in Nova Scotia, Canada, that witnesses who were up mostly dates on rural roads near the water, that type of thing, in one case a police officer who was on patrol saw what looked like a craft landing on the water out there on the bay, basically. And they all spotted this thing. All their reports basically said it had certain colored lights. It was a, not a winged craft. It was a disc-shaped craft that it landed on the water and then disappeared below the water. So the first thing that they thought they'd seen, including the constable who had spotted this, was an aircraft crashing. So calls went out. They sent out search teams to see if they could find this thing. And they had boats trawling to the water. They had they had uh, emergency vessels, everything they could come up with, and didn't see anything other than a like a fluorescent or fluorescent light um, beneath the surface, where maybe this thing had passed and left this in its wake. But they didn't find any object. They put sonar on the on the whole area there where the people had seen this thing go down and disappear, and that was pretty well reported and pretty well documented. And the search was documented. The affidavits were taken from the witnesses who saw it. So it was quite interesting. First, you had two guys flying an aircraft who had seen this thing, like, maybe have trouble. Maybe that's why it exploded. Maybe it had engine trouble. Maybe that's what forced it down. That's kind of the story or the picture that went behind the Shag Harbor incident. Later, researchers put together the fact that there was a Russian sub uh, not there in that part of the bay or harbor off of Shag Harbor, but not many miles away. That, was, that had been seen off the point out there. And the only thing that could be thought was maybe it had something to do with that Russian sub. Maybe they were testing uh, aircraft. Maybe it was a U.S.-Russia combined uh, test of 
of a flying vehicle that could enter the water, go down below the water, and then move below the water in a submarine-type fashion and maybe get picked up by that submarine. That's the best I've been able to make out of the research I've done. But something was seen landing on that water. It was not a typical plane, according to the people who did see it. It was dark, uh, but they did see it according to its lights, and the lights gave off enough that they could see that it wasn't really winged. Um, and that was the that was what went out on that Chag Harbor incident. It was a uh, oh, and that was Halifax Harbor. I was talking about that harbor or that bay out there. That was called Halifax Harbor. Yeah, it, it, th th that's a case I've read upon a lot, and um, I know that it, it, it's one of these cases. Unfortunately, I've mentioned this before that, that subsequent witnesses come forward and they they pollute a little bit of what's what's out there. So I know. One of the most skeptical takes on this is the Skeptoid podcast. Brian, and you've interviewed Brian Dunning, haven't you? So he needs no more publicity yep. via your site because you've already interviewed him. But um, he's yeah, I called I called him Mister Anti Christmas. <laughs> I'd love to meet Brian Dunning. Actually, I've got to be honest. I make I make a point of listening to to, to all of his. I listen to his skeptical takes and, and I listen and I read up a lot of other skeptical takes because it, it's a point I've, I've made earlier on, John, that the, the, the way I tend to look at it is if you apply the most obvious skepticism and you look really hard at cases and they still come back as intriguing, then they're really strong cases. And, you know, from my point of view, I'd rather do that. But I, I, I know he's he's quite damning about one of the investigators, a guy called Chris Stiles, who came along later on and um, along with investigating it also claimed involvement in seeing things so Shag Harbour is a little bit complicated isn't it on that score that said it's an intriguing case I know the the, the simplistic sceptical takes on it I've read just, just put the lights down to flares and then the rest of it down to excitement and misperception and if you went and met the witnesses this is something I've done you know quite a few times where when, when I've met people who've experienced things, what they tell you is not just that it's not just about the facts they give you. It's just the way that you see them react. You know that a lot of these people have had intriguing experiences, and that the, the Shag Harbor witnesses are the, the original Shag Harbor witnesses were people who were absolutely convinced about what they saw. So I'll do I'll do I'll do a little anti-Christmas thing here, John, and then we'll get to bent waters, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a point worth making about some of these cases that cases that start with mysterious lights in the sky and have witnesses who are together and they see something and they're very clear about what it is they've seen there are a couple of problems with this the, the, the first one is something I've mentioned before and I might just go off on one and tell you a couple of stories about things that have happened to me recently um, it's well known among UFO investigators that if you're looking at lights in the sky and you're on the ground, your ability to judge the distance and what you're looking at is not that good, right? And the problem sometimes when people are very sincere about what they've seen is that they absolutely believe it, but in certain cases, provably, what they're seeing and what they're describing is explained away quite easily and, and there's a famous case in, in America about this where 1973 in Georgia, I think we might have discussed this briefly before but 
a group of people were outside a hall ahead of a public meeting. They saw a a UFO, basically, that was dancing in the distance. It looked like it was under intelligent control, and they all talked to each other about this, and it was a really good, you know, a, a, quite an impressive sighting, and they uh, they were all talking to each other, so they were confirming what they were seeing. And it was, it was a well-known UFO case. It became, belatedly, a very celebrated UFO case because one of the witnesses was the main speaker at the event, um, Jimmy Carter, and he went on to be your president. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it, it became a kind of an item of faith among ufologists that clearly there was UFOs were you know a serious business. And apart from anything else, the American president was somebody who'd publicly seen one. But that meant that a lot of attention was paid to that particular event. And a fairly simple explanation for it is that they were looking at Venus. Um, but the the conditions, the atmospheric conditions, and the shimmering waves of heat in the air were making it dance. And a big giveaway about this, as, as a lot of investigators will tell you, is that there are certain types of report that come in and they're often easily explained if you think about a fireball or a long sighting of a light that's moving a little bit, often it's astronomical, right? It's to do with a planet or a star, more often than not a planet. Um, and the giveaway with regard to the Georgia sighting is that nobody in that group, despite the fact that they were looking at exactly where Venus would be in the sky, reported seeing Venus and a UFL. They were all watching one light. So Venus hadn't disappeared. So the, the, the obvious candidate for what they were looking at is Venus seen under slightly unusual conditions and the, then they wind each other up. Now, I don't know whether that explains Shag Harbor or the beginning of it, yeah? But it, it, these, these kind of things happen. And something that's happened to me recently has really brought this home to me that since I've been talking about my UFO book, because I'm quite interested in what people see and how, how do you reconcile this thing about sincere witnesses with stories that you struggle to believe. I've got quite critical about things that I've seen and just coincidentally a couple of times in 2021 I've seen really weird things in the sky that bemused me for a while and a little bit of investigation has explained them so <clears throat> not long ago um, I, mean, I don't think your American listeners have, have ever been to the place but there's a, there's a, a nature reserve in near where I live called Shell Ness and it's on an island which is in the Thames estuary so it's it's on the southeast coast of, of Britain and I was down there at the end of May and I saw a weird little white object in the sky and for a second I thought it was that kind of optical illusion when you're walking along and you see a high-flying plane and the sun's hitting it and because of the right. you're going in one direction the plane's going in another direction and my scientist friends who are smarter than me can tell you exactly, can give you the name for the optical illusion and how it actually happens. But I, I had a good enough look to make sure, and it wasn't, it just wasn't, because you can, it was you know quite clear air and everything. Um, and I got some binoculars, so I put my bag down to get the binoculars and had a look at it, but I couldn't see it in the binoculars. And by the time I got the binoculars down again, I'd lost sight of it. And I was quite intrigued as to what it was, and I checked with a few people who might be in a position to tell me stuff about what it was. And it was it, the thing is, it didn't fit any model of anything that I was used to seeing. It was too high for a bird. It was wasn't didn't didn't look like a plane, and it you know if I stood still, it didn't seem to move, and everything like that. And funnily enough, 
a guy that knows a thing or two about bird watching probably gave me the most useful explanation. And the point about this is it's about how you see distances when you're looking at an object in the air. Um, the the bird watching guy explained to me that it was a really weird time for bird watching, and this he knew about this because we had a very cold spring in Britain. So consequently, the sea didn't warm up. Normally, the sea warms up, you know, particularly where I live, which is the warmest part of the country. It warms up quite fast and and whatever. And the day that I saw this was in a very hot spell. So the sea takes time to warm up. It hadn't warmed up because we'd had a cold spell. When we had this high pressure and there wasn't very much wind and the land warmed up, Actually, what was happening was that the, ther the, the because the land got so hot, the thermals that come up from the land were coming up very quickly, and they were sucking in more of the air than they would normally do off the sea, which was colder than normal, right? And as the bird watcher mm -hmm. explained to me, that meant that the birds that he was watching that were surfing on thermal currents were flying higher, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. His best guess, and I think he's probably right, was that I saw a seagull. Um, and then he pointed out to me, and this is absolutely true, that I'd seen a little white object in the sky just hanging there. So because I'd started thinking it was a plane, I was imagining something thousands of feet up in the air, and it was probably no more than a couple of hundred feet. And the bird watchers knew this because the, the birds had been, at that particular point, just briefly, they, they like to spot birds of prey and they ride thermals and they were just that little bit higher. And obviously if you're a bird watcher, you'd know that. And Subsequent to that, I thought, well, that's still a bit weird, and I made a point of, I'd never really paid much attention to seagulls before, and they're not all one colour, are they? So you get these weird <laughs> seagulls that, some of them are white on the body, or on the back, and then they've got grey wings and whatever, so, I don't know, I mean, I might have seen something from Zeta Reticuli, my money would be on, I was looking at a seagull, and it, it was an odd seagull in the sense that it probably had a grey head and grey wings, and a white rear end. And if I'd got the binoculars on it, I would have probably confirmed that, but I didn't. And so yeah, the, the, yeah. the point I'm making is, and this happens in UFO cases, this happens a lot. People become convinced of what they're seeing, and that mental image is burned in their mind. Yeah. Right. right. And I'll, just let me bang on about another one because this happened to me again recently. So where I live in in the UK. Um, there are some World War Two aircraft that still fly around here, yeah, right. And yep, yep. I've got I've got it too where I live. Okay, we right, yeah, a, and it's a, great. I love to see a military it. aircraft museum. All right, okay, well it's similar. And they're putting up Spitfires and P-51s. It's a wonderful place. So you've got Spitfires then, John? Yeah, right. Okay, yep. we have one. Okay, right. But so the th one great thing about a Spitfire, if you've got one that flies around there. Once you get used to that engine note, there is nothing else sounds like the Merlin engine on a Spitfire, right? Yeah, yeah. okay. So it's not by any means surprising when you see a Spitfire around here. You know, there's, 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 a, there's a couple, and I live next to the showground in Kent, or live near the showground in Kent, the county of Kent, but that's an old World War II airbase, and for various reasons, either right. to do with shows or just to do with historic flying, the Spitfires often fly over there, so they come within sight of my house when they're doing it, so I hear them. Um, and one day I was out, literally feet up outside, having a coffee, reading a book, and I heard a Spitfire come in. And I, I've been here for years, but I still tend to look, because they, they, they're just wonderful to see, aren't they? Um, oh, yeah. And 
I looked to where it would normally be flying, and what I saw was this Spitfire, but it wasn't in, it was in an unusual position. It was right at a distance, but it was coming right towards me. I mean, yeah. as in like it's going to come here and strafe the, my garden, right? And it's a long right. way, way away, okay? And I thought, what? It, that's just, this isn't happening. It's, you know, they normally fly up north of me. Um, and they go, you know, they, they go at a distance. And it, it, it took me a second to realize what I was looking at. And I, when I did realize this, I grabbed my phone. I was trying to get a photograph of it because I thought all these UFO talks that I do, if I get a photograph of this and I can explain this story, I'll explain it. <laughs> I'll tell you what I was looking at. I was looking at a mosquito, not a mosquito aircraft, ah. a mosquito insect. And it, again, yeah. it's just the, the thing was that it, it's, it's what in my head the expectation was I'm going to see a Spitfire. So when I saw this little speck, what came into, obviously what sense I made of it, it was like the stereotypical shot from the World War II movie when you see the plane that's going to come in and shoot you up, right? Um, yeah. And fair enough, the mos by the time I got the phone out, the mosquito had disappeared. We do have mosquitoes in the garden at the moment because it's, you know, it's just to do with the weather we've had when it's got, it's been wet and then it's got very warm. So it's, prime mosquito territory at the moment yeah we've, we've got them here in the south in the u.s and they get so big i saw four of them one time come down and pick up a cow and fly off of them i mean they're, they're just they're wild yeah well thankfully this one was this was a normal size mosquito and i mean the, the spitfire duly appeared in its normal place and flew exactly where it expected to fly but the whole thing is and this is to do with ufos as well here bob uh, john sorry it's Bob, it's getting late in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing my mate Bob before too long. That's what I'm thinking. But um, the the whole thing is that what made me think what I was thinking were two things which are pertinent to UFO sightings. First of all, you are very bad. Most human beings are very bad at judging distances between themselves and an object in the air if there's nothing between you and the object, yeah? And right. I've done the same yeah. thing that I did with that seagull. I'd expected to see something in a particular place where the Spitfire normally flies, and I'd put this little speck there. And the only sense I could make yeah. of it then was it was it, it was coming in with its, because it, you know, with its wings straight on something, because it was going, you know, that, that particular position. Um, and secondly, and this is really important, there's a, a phenomena that, you, that your mind produces, pareidolia, you make pattern sense of things that you're looking at. And all human beings do it, and it's to do with how we've grown and how the need to recognize things in patterns and make sense of things quickly has been part of our species. So we've evolved into this. But I was definitely doing that. And when you do that, one of the things that happens is you very quickly see a vivid image and make sense of it. Yeah? Now, I did. This just happened to me yesterday. I saw an image of, I saw a picture of uh, Sophia Loren at age 84, mm -hmm. and instantly I was looking at her at age 24. I don't know how that happens, but I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. But, but actually, that that's it exactly, John. It's it's the same thing that yeah, we, we all do this. I saw what I wanted to see. Yes, and I saw what yeah. I expected to see, and my mind made sense of it. But the same thing happens time and time again when people encounter something they don't quite understand 
when they're looking at stuff in the sky. So I've no idea with regard to Shag Harbour and Kecksburg and all the rest of it, but there are lots of cases, particularly in the literature, the UFO literature from the 1960s and 1970s, where these craft, these objects, these lights in the sky are seen and pe people describe windows in them, but in some cases they're describing structured craft with windows in and an astronomer would tell you that that structured craft with those windows is in exactly the same place that we know a fireball passed at the same time so are you seeing the structured craft with the windows or are you seeing the bits of the fireball breaking up and hanging in the air for a second now I, I genuinely don't know but it, a note of you know <laughs> Brian Dunning let's cancel Christmas here yeah right yeah um, <laughs> but a note of that is that you know we can all make that we're all capable of doing that and even the most skeptical of us and and you know I'm, I'm skeptical but I still fall prey to this and it, it's just it's something that I've noticed happening and because I've spent a lot of time talking about UFOs and you know giving talks and whatever and writing about it it's something I, I particularly pay attention to because in explaining that and explaining it to yourself there John it's not hard for you to go to the same experiences and say well I do the same thing and actually you're right you know Sophia Loren is in your mind age 24 because she matters right yep yeah she was 24 she was hugely hot and she's she was still, smoking yeah and she, she's still you know <laughs> you're right for an 80 year old she's a, I don't want to get into dodgy. She's sexy. still not bad. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, uh, that, I was being complimentary. She's 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 not bad. She's yeah, that, aged well. That that movie, that recent movie, I can't remember the title of it, where she plays a a retired, you know, like a woman who's been a sex worker and managed sex workers, and she's retired. She's she does a really good job in that of of using. I mean, they make a feature of of the kind of attractiveness and everything that she's got in it, you know. So she's. Yeah. I understand totally how you can look at that and you can see the the twenty four year old because it's still it, it's still her. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 We're all twenty four. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, if any of your listeners are twenty four, that's absolutely it. When they're yeah. our age, they'll still be thinking they're twenty four, yeah. Jim. Yeah. And if Sophia, if you're listening to this podcast, that was entirely complimentary. I just want you to know you benefited from this discussion. Yeah, and John would really like to interview you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Last one, RAF Bentwaters. You're going to tell us all about it. 1956. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell you all about it. I'm, I'm going to start by saying that this, as I reminded you earlier, was one of those cases that Ralph Noyes said got the Ministry of Defense in Britain very, very excited. And... I probably don't need to say every single detail about it because there are overlaps between this and the the Rendlesham Forest case, and and also with the Tehran case. It, it's similar in both ways. It's it's a case that gets the American military based in the south of England very very worked up because they're the people who are largely dealing with it. And rather like the Tehran case, it's got radar, visual, military aircraft involvement. So. A flight of objects, I think it was seven objects, were detected on radar coming in um, over the southeast of England. There's a part of East Anglia, as it's known in, in England, where it's, it sticks out a little bit on the east coast. And it's, it's the home and has been traditionally the home of, of American air bases since the, the, the end of the last world war. Um, 
and a couple of aircraft were scrambled to meet these. Now, there's it's a complicated case, but basically, the objects were tracked on radar. There were civilian witnesses, there were military witnesses who saw them. There was one RAF jet that got within sight of one of these objects to apparently get a radar lock on it. And according to some reports, not all reports, in one sweep of the radar scope, the object that was in front of the jet that could have potentially been shot down moved behind it. Yeah? Mm -hmm. As in just an evasive manoeuvre that today would be impossible, let alone 1956. Um, And there were different bases involved. So... um, Forrest Perkins, who was the American officer who was coordinating the communications and the information to the fighters, subsequently went on to report this to the official investigation that was then ongoing. I mean, you know, in America, this case has turned up in official American military reports of UFOs, despite the fact that it happened in Britain, because the radar tracking and some of the people on the ground involved were United States Air Force based in Britain. So consequently, it, it, it's been reported there. But it's just an intriguing case because, similar to the Tehran case, some of the testimony in there suggests that the military planes were ready to engage an unknown object, and the object managed to do something technically beyond our means to get away from them. Yeah. More skeptical mm-hmm. views of the case, which you will find, suggest that a lot of the radar tracks were radar angels i.e. this is 1950s radar and there were it was quite common that just things would turn up on radar and disappear again and they you know back in those days the radar wasn't anywhere near as sophisticated so things like flocks of birds or even atmospheric effects would cause brief images on radar even if they didn't last and Subsequent to the case becoming quite well known in the UK, there are some sceptical investigators who went out and didn't quite believe it, and they turned up one or two witnesses who dispute some of the testimony. Um, you know, more recently, they, they found a, a British um, RAF guy called Freddie Wimbledon who disputes some of the things that were actually claimed at the time. And there's a Wikipedia page about the whole incident that makes clear that where the discrepancies are. But it's a hugely intriguing case because there was a number of objects that appeared to come in off the North Sea, over the land. They definitely caused confusion and some alarm amongst the military personnel. It was being reported in the moment and the um, Forrest Perkins, who was the, like I say, the American officer who was coordinating all of this traffic, these reports, had no idea what was going on and couldn't quite make sense of it. And people... Was this a joint, a joint exercise in the North Sea? Because you said there was an American... Uh, no, it's, it's not a joint observer. exercise. It's, it's just the way of... <laughs> you're spared this, John, because the Second World War didn't occur on your territory very much, right? Um, yes, right. It, it's, it's just the way of it. And the, the way it was in, in the years after the Second World War... And this was 56, yeah. It's not 56. So yeah. we've had American air bases on British soil yeah. for a long yes. time. Yes, okay. I got you, yeah. And, and it's, it's frontline NATO, yeah? The best right. aircraft and the best technology might be American. That's exactly where you'd stick them in the front line, yeah? Right, um, yeah. You know, so we, we've had a long history of American service personnel. In fact, the folk rock band America, yeah? Yes. Right? Just taking mm-hmm. this. 
there. Horse with no name. Hmm? Oh, uh, no, horse no, with no name. Guys, yeah. UFO with no name. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they were formed in the UK, and they're all the sons of American military personnel based in the UK. Okay. Yeah. So in, interestingly, they, they were called America, but they were first their, their first gigs were in the, were in our country, and because uh, they're, they're did, not, yeah. Did I miss it? But what was the description of this craft that suddenly was, was, jumped from ahead of them to behind them? The the visual descriptions. These were just lights in the sky. They were just airborne lights oh. in the sky. They weren't they weren't described as constructed craft and so Foo Fighters. Yeah. Actually, yep. very similar to, to Foo Fighters, yeah. And um, yeah, the, the, the visual sightings in the air, that's what was described. So one of the reasons I think it's one of the best cases in, in British history is because there's enough people involved that they're all describing the same thing. The American, the officer that was most involved, the American officer that was most involved, i.e. who had the bigger picture in the moment because he, he'd got access to everything from the radar to what the pilots in this in the British pilots actually were scrambled um, what the what the pilots in the sky were seeing he couldn't make sense of it and he subsequently went on to report it to one of your official UFO investigations I mean if, if your listeners are unaware of this this project sign project grudge and project blue book that one followed the other aren't there that, that were just the right. American and they're all worth a Google and these are all before the Pentagon report that came out recently um, and it's not an easily explained case. And Ralph Noyes, the guy that <clears throat> I mentioned to you, who was the high-ranking Ministry of Defence guy that was involved in the UFO community for years, and he died at the end of the last century. But it's one of the cases he said got the Ministry of Defence very excited. Now, again, that doesn't mean they knew that they were dealing with um, anything alien. I remember Ralph, a story Ralph told loads of times, both in the research group that I was involved in and at conferences, and he was very open about this, was that in 1970, when he was already very high ranking, he was among a group of people who were given a lunchtime showing of a few little clips of film and photographs and stuff, which were all classified at the time um, by the MOD. And from that point on, he knew two things. He knew that we were encountering things in the air we couldn't explain but he was also made aware that the RAF, our Air Force um, their view of this and the Ministry of Defence view of this was that they were intriguing but there was no evidence that they were extraterrestrial and last point on this one of the things Ralph Noyes saw which hasn't been declassified although it's, it's widely known to exist was is a very short piece of gun camera film from an RAF fighter of some strange object in the sky and it's not apparently a weather balloon and it's not certainly not any kind of structured craft it's more it's just it's globular it's a ball and, of energy yeah and they, they don't know what it is yeah. and um, it's not been declassified but the Ministry of Defense were it was th it was moments like that which they shared with their top officials including Ralph that convinced them that they were dealing with something real but they didn't know what it it was, yeah, and and but they did not think that these things that they were dealing with were coming from Zeta Reticuli or anywhere else yeah, in outer yeah. space. Yeah, I, there's there's a lot of um, research out there, a lot of theories out there that, at least going back to the Foo Fighters, uh, that they were used uh, during World War II by both the German Air Force and the Japanese, mm. as if they were working in partnership. There were witnesses 
from uh, American flyers going up against Japanese flyers and British flyers going up against German flyers, where there was a type of aircraft up there which armed with this device could release balls of energy that would literally chase the nearest plane. Um, these balls of energy would chase it and destroy the electronics uh, and all the navigation equipment on these planes. And that was a worry to intelligence on, on both sides, American and British. And, and Foo Fighters became the name for it. Mm. But, uh, but uh, it was witnessed in both oceans. Yeah, uh, very scary stuff. Mm. And it's not a million miles away from Foo Fighters, what we're talking about with the Bent Waters case in 1956. And the worry to the military, the worry to intelligence is the point. When, when Ralph Noyes was quite happy to tell people that this case had got the Ministry of Defence excited, one of the possibilities that would worry our Ministry of Defence at the time is that... <clears throat> if we were dealing with an unknown atmospheric phenomena or something similar to it, if we'd reacted and the American Air Force and the British Air Force were both involved in the 1956 bent waters, the Americans with the radar tracking and the communications and the British had actually, there were British aircraft that were scrambled. If we'd become convinced at that moment that the, that, and by accident, accident that an atmospheric phenomena was actually an incoming military strike, the first thing yeah. we'd done was retaliated. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you can see what you could see why the Ministry of Defense might be worried, even if it had nothing to do with aliens, because if if oh, yeah, if, if the world went to nuclear war off the back of an atmospheric phenomena that you couldn't retrieve the situation, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly right. And that brings us to our last subject, which is really going to be what's the future of UFOs? You had mentioned uh, early in our talk today that this report that the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency presented to Congress was just basically a primer and that a larger report is coming behind it. Let's, let's talk a little bit and share with our listeners maybe some uh, thoughts and opinions about what might be in that report and also what's the future uh, in terms of our knowledge of, of UFOs and, and where we're going with our developments. Okay, so the, 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 the primer, the nine-page preliminary report, it basically, it, it, it confirms a couple of things. It, it confirms what Ralph Noyes was talking about ages ago. It confirms what other military who've declassified files seem to be thinking, which is that we've got strange objects, strange phenomena in the sky, and we can't understand them, but there's no provable evidence that they're extraterrestrial. I, I would think that, that there's going to be nothing in the Pentagon report that will contradict that basic position, yeah? I mean... Things like yeah, there's no there's no plus or gain for them in, in in trying to theorize about where it's coming from only that it's there yeah exactly so the the, the report will confirm it's there it may in more detail confirm certain things that are causing people to see UFOs I mean I would be interested if for example there's more detail on exactly how some of the strange things seen in the atmosphere are performing and what other evidence has been gathered or what people have looked into. So we talked ages ago about the Hesterland Lights. If your listeners were to Google the Hesterland Lights, there is absolutely no argument there. There are UFOs that are seen over a valley in Norway. Investigators going to examine these lights have had their own UFO sightings. Nobody believes they're extraterrestrial. They are genuinely there and they don't make sense to science. 
there are good speculative arguments about what's going on, but at the moment nobody absolutely knows, and they behave in ways that suggest that all the easy explanations like ball lightning are just not true. Well, right. so it may well be that your military, our military, military around the world have encountered the same kind of things in a different situa in different situations, and we might learn more about the way our planet behaves when it's doing its strangest things, yeah? And it may well be yeah. that, that accidentally, you know, the the American military, without looking for them, thinking they were going to find them or understanding what the hell they were looking at, have encountered these things. I mean, that's certainly what Ralph Noyes indicated about in, in the UK, and, and that seems to be consistent with some of the more bizarre reports. And, it, you know... It's possible that something like the Bentwaters case is partly explained by that. Um, so I think there might be more detail to, to come in there, and I think that's a, that's part of the future of, of UFO investigation. If I might just throw a few other things in, this is all speculation, but I would I would think a few things might happen in the not too distant future. I think we're getting to the point with understanding life in. I mean, you mentioned outer space before. Do things come from outer space? I think we might get to a point, you know, possibly in our lifetimes, John. And we've, you know, we've we've seen younger days than this. <laughs> I'm still hopeful that in my lifetime there might be hard evidence of of extraterrestrial life. But I think if there is, I think it'll be microbial life. It'll be somewhere like the moon Europa, which is part of our solar system, but not part of our, not nothing to do with Earth. Or it will be, you know, the phosphine gas that was detected on Venus, which suggested to some people that there might be microbial life in the atmosphere there. I think the first alien life, if we detect it, is much more likely to be signs of some kind of simple life, and we'll detect it through telescopes or scientific observation of of our nearby planets, or possibly just a little bit further out. I think that's quite possibly going to happen. If we were going to detect anything more, I would. I mean, I think there's a, an interesting book which is, to say the least, controversial. But your listeners might, if they're in, if if they're interested enough to listen to our third UFO discussion to this far, this far, John, they would probably <laughs> like they would probably like to read Extraterrestrial by Avi Loeb, and this is an interesting story because he's a Harvard professor of astronomy. He discusses an object called Oumuamua that passed through the solar system at the back end of 2017. And because it didn't behave the way that a typical comet or a typical asteroid would behave, he's become convinced that this object is actually something of intelligent design. And without going into all the details, his professional life also includes the fact that he's involved in designing the craft that will be the first hopefully the first earth-built craft or built, built by earth people um, to travel to a nearby star rather than a planet um, and he thinks that Oumuamua is using a similar power source to what they're planning which is a basically a sail that collects solar energy and then uses a laser beam to power the craft because it mm -hmm. generates it you couldn't fly an aircraft in Earth's atmosphere that way, but you can fly a lightweight spacecraft through space like that. And I think if we were going to encounter extraterrestrial life, it would be that, or we would pick up a signal. I mean, there is, for me, one of the most intriguing, still one of the most intriguing 
fragments of evidence for possibly extraterrestrial life is the wow signal because we've never explored yeah. that yet. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, the, 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 I'll just make this point then be interested in, in what you think the future of this is because the truth is we don't know. Um, I'll, I'll make a really flippant point in my book about in, in UFOs, Aliens and the Battle for the Truth about the wow signal. It was detected on the 15th of August 1977. I mean, that's when it was detected. It, it took them a while to read the print out and actually spot it and write wow next to it, which is why it's called the wow signal. But all bets are off where that's concerned. And I just make a flippant suggestion in the book that maybe the Space Brothers were calling home one of their representatives on Earth because that signal occurred the day before Elvis died, in inverted commas. <laughs> <laughs> August of 77, huh? Yeah, it's, you know, yeah. so all, all bets are off where the wow signal is concerned because nobody can explain <laughs> it. So, I mean, for all we know, Elvis wasn't human and, and you know, they tell him his time here was up. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love, I'd, I don't believe that, but I would, I would love that to be true. <laughs> <laughs> in, terms of the, in terms of the final report from the Defense Intelligence Agency, they've been asked to provide what they know I think it could be interesting in terms of uh, incidents we may not be aware of. I know that there are other incidents we didn't cover today that we didn't cover as part of the top ten, but we know that our, our military, especially U.S. Navy flyers and Air Force flyers, especially Navy flyers working out over the ocean on both coasts here, at least in the U.S., have definitely cited and filmed and recorded for posterity the presence of some type of craft. Uh, and it's it's fairly obvious to me that these are not ours, or they would not be as public as they are about them. And I guess the major worry of our military, just like all all militaries, all all governments, all civilizations on Earth that are advanced enough to the point where they feel they have to protect their borders and be capable of fending off uh, an attack, are always on the cutting edge in terms of technology, trying to trying to dream the dream and saying, okay, if we, can, if we can dream it, we can create it. And I'm sure that there is technology existing in China and in Russia and here in the U.S. and in the U.K. beyond which, uh, about which we're only barely aware of powerful laser beams of, of different types of craft that, like our Space Force, that can, that can protect our satellites and our means of communication and our means of warfare, which is going to be coming from and through satellites, um, in order to protect those, to put them in place, to keep them in place, that's I think is the major worry of a lot of countries because war now, any any potential future war, is not basically just a nuclear war because a nuclear war, in many ways, can be thwarted, but it's a war of communications and technology. If you can knock out uh, communications and technology and electronics in any given area, in any given country, in, any, in anyone's defense, in holes in their defense, you've gained the upper hand. And you only need the upper hand for a certain amount of time to totally destroy another country. Uh -huh. All those are ugly and sad facts that, that, that our people and their people have to constantly work on the, on the ways to maintain the upper hand in all that. But I think they're bringing all this, I think they wanted to bring all this to attention 
because they believe that it's not, uh, that these aren't Russian-made craft that we're seeing. They're not Chinese-made craft that we're seeing. And we honestly don't know where they're coming from. We do know that we have not been attacked in any part of, of the world that we're aware of by any extraterrestrial craft. That they had, Up to this point, as far as we know, they have not presented us any, any our civilizations, any threat. In, in, in my situation, we all believe what we're going to believe. In my situation, I can't even comprehend the size of our solar system. But I, I know it's large enough that if we exist as a civilization and we've reached point C in our development in terms of technology and knowledge and flying craft, that the likelihood that there are other civilizations possibly different, possibly very different than ours in terms of physical structure, but still with brains and still with the ability to create mechanical things, that there are other civilizations, the chance that they exist to me is very real and very possible. And if they're advanced beyond us, then there's every chance that uh, they're trying to be non-confrontational with regard to what they find or what they see here on Earth. Why they would come to Earth, other than just to, to see where we are in our, in our phase of development, uh, that maybe in the future sometime they could form any type of an alliance with us or be able to pull minerals from our ocean or from our soils that possibly they need they would try to make contact with us and try and arrange those type of alliances. Um, that, may, that may seem like science fiction to a lot of people, but I don't see why that wouldn't be a possibility. Yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm open to the thought that, yes, there, there, there are probably other civilizations out there. They just have not been, they have not been a, a danger to us at this point, and we're, we're trying to get a handle on what we know. There's... A British scientist wrote a, a book about science and UFOs a few years ago, a guy called Edward Ashpole, it was in the last century, and, and he's got a very convincing argument for why if there were alien craft near Earth, it would make sense that they, the, the best way to monitor the Earth would be to have craft that were just dormant, that were just in space, and they, certain things would wake them up, right? You know, um, a nuclear blast, anything, yeah, 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 and yeah. but also that the, the point he would he was making was that it would make a lot more sense to keep them away from having to come into the atmosphere and deal with all the problems with that, so that they would be in space. And right. I, I mean, who knows? You know, when I first got interested in UFOs, I read the stuff that I'm talking about often on now, the you know the kind of the books of the '60s and the '70s, which are full of really vivid stories. Kexburg and stuff are in particularly if you if you read this if you grew up in Britain then we produce quite a lot of UFO books but some of the most some of the most vivid writing and some of the more intriguing books were American books and so you know it's it, it, the, the the best known cases in America like things like the Kexburg case and you know the alleged Aztec crash, UFO crash, which is way before Roswell was known. They were all widely available over here in in paperback books, and I'm still, you know, I've got still got original copies of those, like people like Raymond Fowler, and you know, whose books were full of these kind of cases. And I mean, he lived around the northeast of America, so New Hampshire and Massachusetts and stuff like that figure quite largely because that's where he did his investigations. Um, and you know th these these ideas were a big part of what were in those books, and, and 
who knows? I mean, I was I was always influenced by those. My my feeling about it is I don't think we're going to discover that as the first serious evidence. I, you know, I I think the first evidence of if we discovered anything about alien life, it would be we detect very simple life, we detect evidence of very simple life, or some random object that couldn't have been created on Earth would be detected, and right. you know, and and so I'm I, I'm back on the wow signal or Omua Mua as the likeliest contenders at the moment. Although I'm not sure how likely they are, I've made it my business to read the people who claim that they're evidence of that. The wow signal. Well, all bets are off. It's just an anomaly, and nobody knows. Omua Mua, one of your top scientists, i.e., the professor, you know, a Harvard professor, has gone public about this. So he he knows what he's on about, and he's written a like a quite convincing case of it. He hasn't convinced that many people, but explaining it away is 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 difficult. I I would just last point on this really. I would love when I'm for all that. I, say quite skeptical things on your podcast John I'd love to be wrong absolutely would love to be wrong particularly at the moment if if there are advanced civilizations in touch with us they I would hope would know more about how to stop global warming um, how to cure incurable diseases yeah how to manage a planet than we would because if they've got to the stage of being able to travel between planets i.e. the stuff we're just dreaming about Elon Musk and his generation of dreamers are talking about how we'd go and you know how we would use our own solar system the way we used to use our countries then our planet to mine resources and to build a civilization and that's that's right. the dream now, at the moment, that dream's being articulated while we're busy poisoning our oceans and driving our climate into producing once-in-a-thousand-year events quite regularly, which is alarming. So we've got to get on top of one lot of problems before we can do the amazing stuff. But if anybody's got on top of the problems to do what we're just beginning to think about, they should be able to help us. So I would love, I would just love all my skepticism to be destroyed because I would love your Pentagon to say okay now's the time to tell you <laughs> yeah this guy arrived in 1947 and he's been helping us ever since and now he's going public yeah I mean that would be wonderful right. um, I'm not going to put money on it but I, I it would no. be great if it happened <laughs> yeah <laughs> I agree with you too well it's been an interesting romp here through the top 10 UFO and we've cut co we've covered a lot more than just the top 10 UFO incidents there are a lot more out there for everybody to check, and I hope we've left a lot of clues behind us here today for those of you who might be curious and are looking for more information. But it was certainly an enjoyable conversation. Enjoyed it very much, Neil. Thank you for being with us today. It's an absolute pleasure, John. Yeah, go well. Thank you. Yeah, Neil, would you would you Neil, would you mention how people can get in touch with you and find your books? Yeah, okay. So you, you can find my books where you'd think you can find them on all the online sites. The Wilderness Dog goes to Amazon. I'm I'm Neil Nixon with an N I X O N, which is a name Americans know how to spell, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, communicating with me as, as as people do off the back of podcasts or whatever. The, the easiest thing if you're not in the UK is to just go to neilnixon.com, which is my website, and you can message me through that and. Um, obviously, the messages that come through that, if they arrive in my email, are identified as coming from the site. So <laughs> I might take a long time to respond to my bank if they're asking me for a customer survey, but I'll reply to somebody from my website right away. <laughs>